Thanks for joining us today at BIV Today, the podcast from the newsroom of Business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and executive editor. Chartered financial analysts, CFAs, are at the leading edge of proven investment analysis and wealth management. And like all professions, they make systematic advances to reflect the circumstances in which they operate. As we start February's Black History Month, and as we witness transformation in our institutions and professions all over the place, it's an opportune time, I think, to discuss diversity, equity, and inclusion with the president of the CFA Institute, Margaret Franklin. The Institute last year introduced its own DEI code with six principles behind it. We'll discuss those. Margaret Franklin will be one of the two keynote speakers February 9th at the CFA Vancouver annual dinner, the other one being former Bank of Canada and Bank of England Chief Mark Carney. She joined me now from New York City. Good to see you. Nice to be here. Thanks very much for having me on this call and certainly um, acknowledging Black History Month. Yeah, um, you know, CFAs acquire their credentials through your institute, and 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 I want to take you back a few years then to say how to find out how you set about to bring DEI into your mix here. So I would say it was organic, and um, it started with um, a small group of women who were at a conference. Uh, I have to be one of them, and um, we just looked around, and we were in our 40s, and there just weren't any women around. We thought it was a great business, and we really didn't understand what had happened. So um, we launched our first Women in Investment Management conference um, almost a decade ago and at that point we had to um, bring outside research from other industries and sectors to demonstrate that diverse teams make better decisions generally are more resilient more adaptable and in our case risk adjusted returns um, matter um, we then from there did our um, uh, so we had women in investment management program. Um, we then started to put together 20 ideas and strategies to develop DEI in companies. And then we got 40 um, leading investment management firms to actually commit to one or two of them and to report on a quarterly basis how they were going. So we put the experiment in place. And that really led to the DEI code, which was championed by investment professionals and generally leaders uh, in here in North America to put a principle around it and then back it up with action. So I would say if 10 years ago we were putting forward a thesis, we now see that investment management industry and firms that populate it are have great intention, really want to do it well and are struggling with the how and making sure that they're doing it right. Um, and part of that's experimental. Okay, you, you've covered a lot of ground in, in your answer and a few of my questions are, are uh, preempted as a result, but let me let me walk you through one of them. Um, I mean, you, you did a lot of fact finding, um, a lot of research, and it, what were the gaps that you were discovering as, as you went along? So I think some of the gaps were the practices that were in place um and thinking about having a holistic view and from there you're able to determine some of the actions remediable actions that you can put in place so first of all is identifying what works what doesn't what are people trying to do and do they have a framework within which to start the whole um start the whole process yeah you chose uh, as an institute for this uh, code to be voluntary uh, yeah. but it sounds like you've got a large buy-in doesn't sound like this is a remote thing or an isolated thing by any means. But but um, why did you decide for it to be voluntary? Was there something that that 
legally or or operationally stood in the way yeah. of, of making it a mandatory thing? So I think there's a couple of things always when you put codes and standards out there. One is sometimes they can conflict with local jurisdictions. So, you know, that reduces um, adoption rates. What we do see is a playbook that we've used in several different areas, like our performance measurement, uh, global investment performance standards, is that they become best practices. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is if you're not adopting it, why aren't you adopting it? So it's more by um, carrot than stick. And of course, you know, there are lots of reasons why people wouldn't adopt it if it was mandatory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, I'm going to get a little later on into differing cultures and countries and all of this, because you chose to start, obviously, in Canada and the United States with it uh, in order to, to start it off. There are a half dozen principles here, and I think I'd like to explore a few of them uh, with it. The first couple are expanding the pipeline and uh, acquiring talent. Um, how is the membership approaching these two? I mean, what are the sort of initiatives there? So what? first of all, we had a target of 40 um, signatories to the code, and that's now over 100. And these are some of the leading firms. Um, what we did see through the process was that many of those firms really scrutinize their own practices and then their ability to be able to move forward on some of these dimensions to 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 be uh, true and have integrity to mm -hmm. the intention through their process so um, when you think about the pipeline the very first thing you have to do is you have to say we have an intention of hiring diverse talent so we're going to commit to that and most people will have targets right like so it could be something like every slate has to have diverse candidates. They need to meet the criteria and we'll have diverse candidates. That of course starts you going down different paths around where you actually go and seek talent. Um, and just the very awareness of that and putting a framework around it uh, changes, the, um, changes the landscape. The other thing we find is that when you get to talent acquisition and you start to put these pieces in place, you discover things either about your own firm or your own practices um, that challenge the way you've thought about things. So some things that work for a very homogenous cohort have unintended exclusionary consequences for a broader audience. Mm -hmm. And so those two practices in and of themselves generally reveal or surface things that may be counterproductive, not only for your diversity and inclusion, but also more broadly for your culture and the type of talent that you attract to, yeah. the, to the industry. In, in most of the diversity initiatives that I've been either a part of or, or seen elsewhere, I mean, one of the fundamental things is that um, a, a diverse workforce doesn't see its future in, in yeah. an institution, right? And so, so that then goes to one of your other principles, which has to do with uh, promotion and yeah. career development and all that. Uh, and you almost have to do it at the same time. You have to mm -hmm. demonstrate that it's one thing that, to be recruited, but you will be recruited with a purpose to advance yeah. this case. So again, uh, talk to me a little bit about the uptake in that mm -hmm. and how that's going. So I think this is actually one of the thorniest ones because what happens mm -hmm. is you start to get to unconscious bias, um, unconscious practices, mm -hmm. um, it gets to training and development across, again, a more diverse talent pool. Um, you know, not everybody learns and trains the same way. And so there's, again, there's almost this universal design benefit when you start to tackle these very precise 
um, issues, they generally uh, reveal a broader systemic issue. Um, promotion is a really good one. So it's not just enough to have a diverse slate and attract diverse talent, but if your turnover is really high and you can't retain them because they don't see a future, then you probably have some interesting challenges to deal with. So I'll give you one very precise example. If you look at um, uh, coming from an industry that is largely male dominated uh, to one that wants to attract, let's start with the biggest um, diversity challenge, 50% women in the population, and how do you get more women in, in the industry and then have them promote, be promoted and retained? You know, that's probably going to start to have you take a look at what your um, what your workplace practices are and your workforce and workplace strategy. Now that has a collateral impact because millennials have a very different expectation about what the workplace might look like and what, what they're looking for. So you can start to see how these have spillover effects and get really to the heart of what you're trying to achieve, which is an engaged, motivated, empowered, trained workforce. And sometimes you have to go keep digging further and DEI really is a practice that has you getting to those essential components of what's your purpose what are you trying to deliver how do you get the right people because most of our stuff is really around people how do you get the right talent in and how do you make sure you maximize the the benefit of having that diverse talent frankly yeah. it's not easy no and and when it doesn't exactly work um, it can, in my experience in organizations, it can lead to uh, a certain deflating of, um, of, of whether it's management or the workforce uh, along the lines of, well, you know, maybe this isn't going to work. And, and it, so it requires also, I think, a different sort of persistence, doesn't it? I think you've hit on something that's critically important and I think going to be really, really um, probably next level attention. And that is how are our leaders and managers leading and managing? So um, what I believe has accelerated this is the pandemic because we all went to remote working. How do I know what somebody's doing? How do I have confidence that um, they're not at home. And, you know, the proverbial, if I can't see it, I don't know what they're doing. I think dogs, dogs have been very healthy, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they really have. So that will actually, and you can already see it, have new practices around how do we how do we communicate what needs to be done? What are best practices in agreeing on commitments, outputs, the how, the what, the how, and the why? That will challenge managers to think differently and behave differently. So again, you start to see what we started to see in the pandemic was that firms who were very adept and practiced in DEI through most of these principles had at least the humility to say, we don't have it perfect. But what they noticed was that they were more able to respond to the pandemic because they knew how to include different voices around the table. They knew how to capitalize on what ends up being cognitive diversity, partly because of your lived experience, partly because the way you're trained, all those things that we now, we now actually have really good words for and they're common, co more yeah. common lexicon, but we're not totally skilled and practiced in it yet. Yeah, in my subject position uh, as a manager now for I guess 35 years, 
Uh, I, I've seen uh, the evolution of all of this, but two of your principles I think are pretty important uh, for people like me and people like others in in, uh, in management positions. And that has to do with the promotion of yeah. EI um, and, and in a lot of ways, the measurement of it. And, yeah. and that's where the latter is where I think, again, we, uh, we have some issues uh, trying to measure what we're really dealing with here and, and how we're trying to transform. How, how has uh, CFA Institute kind of gotten at this? So I think, first of all, we are analysts at heart. So we try and um, get as much data as we can. I think the um, program that we had with the 40 firms where we asked them to put two strategies into place, the reporting structure back was unstructured. So it was not just a uh, give us your numbers, check the, you know, check off some boxes that yielded very rich insights for us. So a good example of that is that unconscious bias training is ineffective unless it starts from the very top. There needs to be a commitment, a true commitment from leadership. Otherwise, it's for naught. And that, I think, is a good example of trying to think of what the end state you want is and approaching it in different ways. There is, I would say, mixed outcomes on mandatory quotas uh, for, for instance, women on boards and the like. Um, targets are great to help you focus on the practices that either, either enable or hinder you. And that's really, if you're not measuring it, you can't actually diagnose what the root causes are. Because when you start to look at the numbers and you say, we've got we've got we've hit our diversity targets but we don't see them stay with us so we've got this investment what's going on you analyze you implement you know you come up with a strategy implement and go back at it so uh, i believe that as we start to become much more adept and comfortable with these practices it will actually and they become your habits that will then open up um you know further refinement of it is, is there room in all of this um, also for uh, people of different values to, um, to, to count as part of this DEI um, initiative? Because I, it, I'm sure you've heard this, that, you know, some people say, well, what's the point of, of appointing non-white men to boards if they're simply going to have the same attitudes, they're the same, the yeah. same approaches to solving problems the same sort of uh aggression and and you know where where there's just another form of hyper masculinity that winds up on a board um you know i'm i'm curious about how that's being tackled at your end so, so first of all i think actually um when i think about cohorts and when they're perceived as homogenous so let's let's put men in a single category. When you don't have diversity, you, you don't temper some of those instincts that may just, not, you might not even be aware of, right? So hypermasculinity, I think back you know, 30 years ago when I began the business, it was hypermasculine, right? From, uh, from, from some people's perspective. Um, oftentimes that would be from an immigrant perspective and a woman's perspective. But if you're in that cohort, you don't think about it <laughs> being uh, aggressive, having grown up with brothers, they just think that's, you know, that playtime. And so I think part of it is when you start to introduce people 
with different ways of thinking, different backgrounds, different lived experiences, and you create a condition for that to be expressed and to contribute, you start to have a very different um, outcome. And I will say that, you know, the the spillover effect for everyone, everyone is important, right? Because it gets more to meritocracy and more to team composition than um, certain profiles, which, you know, just don't make any sense anyway. And I can say that I think I've certainly seen how men have benefited and been allowed to, you know, operate differently because not all men are the same, right? It's not all hyper-masculine. So it really is to say, how do we, it's just like a portfolio. How do we make sure we have proper diversity in the diversification in the portfolio such that we have really good risk-adjusted returns? Teams are not exempt from that concept at all. Yeah, that's a great answer. Um, When you take a look at other countries, other cultures, uh, as you uh, attempt to roll out DEI, everywhere, ultimately. Um, Where do you think um, the first impediments come or the first changes have to be as you you get outside of the uh, USA and and Canada? Well, I I think universally um, gender is, is that there's no jurisdiction that's excluded from that at all. And particularly when you sort of unpack or disaggregate, get into more finer details on take the take the whole cohort and start to break it down. So when we look at the different sectors or different divisions within the um, broad investment management industry, for instance, we know that right within the investment decision making engine, that is a that is a cohort that still remains intractably male. Um, So I think as you as what we've seen in the early stages with the other countries that are beginning to um, amend and sort of modify for their own cultures is in their own circumstances and starting spots that uh, you will see different local expression. The principles are the same, but for instance, in Canada, we have um, an acknowledgement in the code to um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and, and it is not exclusive to our industry, but having an acknowledgement of the rights of indigenous people and um, you know framing it in the principles of another code acknowledges a very unique circumstance and condition for Canada. And so that's the kind of thing that the codes um, in, in countries will start to adapt. The idea is not to punish firms and it's not to have a, a state of perfection. It's to say, what's your starting spot and how do you advance on these dimensions? And while it's not mandatory, um, we do, you know, we we do hold people to account. So there is an, a, an audit process around it. So we, yeah. we can take away the signatory status. Yeah, yeah, there is a measurement metric in this. Yeah. Um, so I won't name a name from my past, but uh, but I remember uh, with the first diversity initiative that I had much to do with in, in running. Um, I could only make it um, palpable if I could explain to my bosses how it was very good for business. Yeah. Right? Very good for business. But you're you're in a different kind of business. You've got 
clients who probably, you know, don't really like the idea that someone's going to direct them on some of some of these issues. How are you making that seem for investors who are coming to your, you know, your teams, mm -hmm. North America, uh, that this is actually um, there's an enlightened self-interest here if you pursue this. Yeah. So I think um, I think you hit on why we've put so much research and framing around it, and it is. Well, it's right to, you know, there, there's a justice aspect to it. We've always been pretty clear that this is to improve investor outcomes. So I think that why would that occur now and why would clients be more open minded to it? I think there are really two dimensions to it. One, the client composition is changing quickly and fast. Right. So, you know, if you look at some of those ads and it's an elderly white couple and it's, you know, that's just not the world right now and that's not that doesn't reflect the the nature of the client composition so that's the first thing the second thing is the emerging generation millennials you know almost anybody sub call it 40 45 they have a very different experience and very different expectations around um around what workforce place should look like and what teams should look like they're very global um you know i think in canada we benefit from a lot of immigration i mean i think in our business we have good visible minority people um from different backgrounds coming coming into the industry which is actually not frankly as evident here in the u.s mm -hmm. um you know the uk is probably going to have a different challenge so you're right. You have to say, what is the value argument and how does that marry up with values? Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, at the end of the day, people entrust us with their financial assets to create value and values can play a part in how that creates better resilience and and a better system. Yeah. But sometimes, obviously, the moral argument isn't uh, isn't fully persuasive. You have to go. Like, no, no. And, and I don't I don't. Um, I think for some people it will be, it'll be very important. If I don't see any women in on your team, if I don't see somebody who looks like me, why would I give you my money? But you're right. It's, it's not sufficient. And we have always led with how do we improve outcomes for investors through diverse teams? Last issue. Um, what does success look like in this? So I think success looks like that our teams right through to the heart of the investment teams looks like society, right? It, it, it just it just looks like people from all different backgrounds. And I, I'll, I'll give you one very specific example. A big quality that employers are looking for is grit and perseverance and resilience. Well, Canada has, in particular, lots of that. We have kids from immigrants who, um, you know, come to this country to for education, for a better life. And, and, and they, I think in our system, in many ways can accelerate very quickly. And certainly teams I've run, they look like they look like the general population. So I think that's one that's that's one dimension. I think a real sign of success is that we see significant material progress on practices that are broadly embraced to improve the workplace 
environment such that we can have inclusion. We know how to attract the talent. We know how to include them such that we can capitalize on it. And it's a fair, equitable system. All right, then I have to follow with that. there is one element of, of diversity that is difficult, I think, for you know for your profession to deal with, and that's the income issue, the inequity of income. Yeah. Um, how how do you get across that bridge? Oh well, this is a really good one because this is where the data really really matters. So you know it is widely um, held that there's a thirty percent pay discrepancy on average for women. There are practices that are being promulgated that um, ensure fairness, not just for women, but for everybody. That includes things like New York. If you post a job, you actually have to post the salary range. Um, You're not allowed to ask somebody what their previous salary was, because if you start off with a discriminatory practice that says because of something about you, not your qualifications, we're going to pay you less. You can see how over a long period of time that compounds and has an impact. So there's where the data really matters. And then you start to highlight best practices. What I would say is I do see a real a real desire to actually do better. Like I, I, I do I can see businesses in our industry get it and want to get on it how they go about doing it is some of the real work that we're doing based on all the research qualitative and quantitative that is exactly what cfa institute is all about taking the best practices putting them on a neutral independent impartial platform to lead the industry for the ultimate benefit of society okay so i think uh, i think you've rehearsed your keynote speech for next uh, next week. <laughs> I don't know. I'm better off script, off piste, as they say. <laughs> Happy to be of service this way. Um, anyway, very good to talk to you. Thanks a lot, Margaret. It's been it's been really a good chat and uh, uh, best wishes with all of this. I think thanks, Kirk. For that. Yeah, thanks. well, thanks. Great questions and really, really nice to spend some time with you. Margaret Franklin is the president of CFA Institute. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and executive editor of BIV. Thanks a lot for watching.